and they didn't realise but my diagnosis was like the ultimate uppercut, right? So to sit in there and have what seems to be a really healthy firstborn child, but just something wasn't quite right. Um, and I won't say the doctor's name, but he sat my parents down on a cold autumn's morning and he said, your son would be better off with a terminal illness that would kill him or he'd get over. Cystic fibrosis would ruin his life. And I remember thinking, I'm 23. I'm so out of touch with sense of purpose. I'm so driven by money and financial endeavors. If this isn't a sign to figure out who I am and what mark I want to leave on the world, I don't know what is. For me, just the sacrifice that they made for me to be as healthy as I am now, like I owe my life to them. The best day of my life was crossing the finish line of my first marathon because I think it was a message for them that every bit of sacrifice and hard work has led to me now being in control. But more importantly, I'm going to share that message that nothing is impossible for people with CF. I'm Bradley Driver and this is Life, Money and Love. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right, Bradley Driver. Uh, guys, for anyone listening, we I just spent the last hour and a half chatting to him on on uh, Brad's podcast. A lot to talk about. Such a great chat. We Obviously, he was interviewing me, talking a lot about my story and a, and a lot of the perspectives and things that I've been through to, to get where I'm today. But this man we're talking to, not only was he a great podcast host himself, a really great flow, one of the best podcasts, I feel probably the best podcast from a flow point of view I've been on in terms of the questions, felt so great. But this man, let me tell you, everyone who's listening, such an amazing human being and such an incredibly inspirational person. Um, I'll let Brad tell his story. Um, I'll, I'll get him started off. But for people that want to get a little glimpse into who this man is and how special he is, Brad uh, was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at birth. Um, he developed, uh, liver, liver disease at age nine, I believe yeah. diabetes at 13. And in 2020, he ran his first marathon with bleeding lungs just a couple of weeks after getting out of hospital and literally two days ago, ran 50 Ks and ultra, um, proving that fucking no one can stop you and nothing can define you. So man, thank you for being you and thank you for coming on, man. It was great to chat before and I'm excited to talk to you about you and all your amazing things you've been able to do. Mate, thank you so much. It sounds like a bloody pager there for that intro, <laughs> oh, no. like cheeky bit of cash under the table. Yeah, but, thanks for that. Um, hopefully people watching this can see why there's bags under my eyes after that 50K two days yeah. ago. But, mate, really blessed. I, I love what you've done. It was such a pleasure to have you on my show. And, you know, this is always a privilege, right, to connect with like-minded people who have powerful stories. And the foundations of my podcast were – was this belief that conversation is powerful. And I know that I'd experienced conversation as a third party and I've, I've experienced it in person, you know, chatting to someone that's close to me or meeting someone new, conversations that have changed my life and allowed me to understand my direction, my purpose and push me on a path to do things that make life worth living. And, you know, anytime I get the opportunity to sit across from someone on a show, whether it be as a host or a guest, it's an opportunity to do that again. So very grateful to be here. That, oh, thank you for being here. And there's something you said before. It wasn't where I planned to start, but there's something you said where I was chatting to you. I think it was even off air before we started recording. I said, um, I asked you how your body's feeling. Like two days out from doing 50 Ks, I was chatting to you yesterday, like I'm jumping in the ice bath. I can only imagine how your muscles and bodies are, are, are feeling. But I said to you, I ran a half marathon at the end of last year. And the last few Ks, my body, like I was fine in the last few Ks, everything started to hurt. And I said, like those last few Ks were, were fucking really difficult. Um, but obviously you get through it, push through, it's like a few Ks, whatever. And, and you said something, I can't remember exactly what you said, but essentially like it's the, the, the perception of how big the task is dictates like how you feel about it. And what I mean by that is I was just did a grading for martial arts and, and I don't want to talk about myself too much, but we had to do a lot of double sessions. 
And mm. I remember because I had, I knew I was doing a double decision, I'm going to be there for three hours. When I did the first class an hour and a half in, you're feeling fresh, you're feeling sweet because you know you're only halfway. But then you finish your grading and you go back down and doing an hour and a half. An hour and a half in, I'm buggered. But it's <laughs> like if you know you've got a bigger goal to go forward, that shifts your mindset and you really can push through so much more. So I just love that little thing you dropped on me a little earlier today. No, brother, it's, it's so true, isn't it? I think life, that, that's the reason why I see my challenges as such a blessing because I think it's developed a sense of resilience within me that when I look at the challenge of life as a whole and even to look at the challenges that other people in life face and, you know, people with CF, a lot of people have it far more challenging than I do. I feel very grateful. And when I look at them, one thing I kept saying to the crew the other day while we were running was, fuck, what a blessing that we chose this suffering, that there's someone sitting in a hospital bed. There's a kid right now with CF who's fighting far harder than we'll ever need to fight to cross the finish line of 50Ks. So it's all perspective. It's all mindset. And, yes, it takes a level of, of physical preparation, but mate, mentally is the biggest challenge in anything we face in life. And on that, um, to give people context that aren't exactly sure what cystic fibrosis or CF is, can you explain to people what it is and how it affects the body? For sure. So cystic fibrosis, like you said, is something that everyone who is diagnosed has at birth. So it's not something that's developed later in life. It's a genetic condition. It's a condition that is essentially there's a defective gene, so the cystic fibrosis gene. And there are a few different mutations of it that differ in severity in what organs and parts of bodily function are affected but essentially it's a gene that transports salt and water to the cell. Without that salt and water, the mucus that moves throughout, not just the lungs and the nasal cavities, but the whole body um, is affected. It's affected where with cystic fibrosis, it's thicker and stickier. And when it doesn't move as freely as it should, it sits on the organs, it impairs the function. It can scar those organs. Um, in a place like the lungs, it means that it's a breeding ground for infection. Um, where infection lies, it tends to get scarred in the airways. Um, which leads to, you know, dropping the ability to get air in and out of the lungs, dropping the capacity of your lungs, um, but also then just causes a bunch of other issues. I think the two staple issues for most people with CF is lung infections and managing lung health. Um, the second is digestion. So the pancreas doesn't effectively produce digestive enzyme to digest fat and protein when you consume it through food. And so essentially I take 30 of the tablets I take a day are digestive enzymes to digest f protein and fat. And when you don't have the body doing that naturally, like natural is always best, right? So when you're taking capsules to do that job, you then don't absorb the nutrients as well as you probably would if you were without CF. So a lot of people with CF are a little bit more underdeveloped in terms of their weight, height, and muscular development. And it leads to other things. Like for me, I got the most common but most severe style of cystic fibrosis, which is a mutation is getting a little bit scientific called um, Delta F508 gene. I got two of those genes from both my parents and essentially um, not everyone with this gene then gets the issues with a liver that I did, um, liver disease at the age of nine, which is actually cirrhosis, the same thing an alcoholic would get, um, but then also diabetes at 13, um, esophageal varices issues at 16. But really, mate, for me, it's just... It's all, it's all a badge of honour because it's not stopped me doing what I do and um, I guess we'll get into that later in the story but essentially that's what CF is and it's different for everyone and that's why I say to people never compare, the same that you would with anything in life, never compare where you're at and the challenges you face with someone else's. It is very individual um, and I'm just blessed that I had fantastic foundations early in my life with it. 
and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure in the exact stat, but this could be wrong, but it's like, it's something like one in 20, one in 25 people have a gene for CF mm. that just hasn't presented itself because both sides of the, like DNA didn't have it. Isn't that co- yeah, something com- like that? Yeah, completely correct. So one in 25 people carry the CF gene. I think it is where two people carry the CF gene. Um, there's a one in 2,500 chance that they will have a baby with cystic fibrosis. Uh, for me personally, as a cystic fibrosis patient, someone who has CF, um, there is a chance that if a one in 25, you know, my partner has that CF gene, then with the two of us, it'd be a one in four chance that we'd have a child with CF. So it's actually the most common genetic illness in young Australians, which is funny because, well, not funny, but it's interesting because there's not a lot of educational understanding around CF. And I've often questioned why that's the case. And it's been a big part of the advocacy work I do with CF Australia but I think the reason behind that is it used to be called the childhood's disease because people didn't make it out of their teenage years or even into their um, sort of early adolescence. Um, obviously, medical advancements have come a long way and modern medicine is doing wonders for people with CF. But there was just such a lack of education because people didn't have the chance to meet adults with CF, to understand the diseases that progressed and understand and, and see people living life with it. Um, so yeah, it's very, it's very common as far as genetic disease goes and, um, you know, it requires a lot of attention is quite severe and because it does affect so many of the body's major organs, um, you know, people with CF tend to pass and have complications from a number of different issues. So it's, it's such a complex condition. And some of the advocacy work you did was, um, to get Trikafta uh, on the, like what's on the scheme, right? Is has that, that's happened now, obviously over the last year. How has that impacted your life and how has that changed help people that are, that are living with CF? So Trikafta is, I guess, a thing that we've been waiting for for a long time, right? So when I was born, um, a bunch of doctors said to my parents in my early years that oh, we hope within like 20 odd years there'll be a cure. You know, there's no cure yet and we're far from that. We're far from that in terms of the ability to heal people completely and solve the issue of cystic fibrosis. But in the space of time, I don't think we're that far. I think within the next decade, we're very close to having our hands on something that makes CF um, a very small and short-term issue. But Trikafta is essentially what they call gene um, gene therapy. So what it does is it starts to correct that defective gene in a way that it somewhat does its job. Now, there have been similar drugs to Trikafta, um, one being Orcambi, another being Simdeco, that I'd had access to both of those over the course of the last few years. Or Camby didn't make me feel great for some people it worked well. Simdeco, to me, really didn't make too much of a difference on my daily life. Trikafta, on the other hand, feels like I'm on steroids. <laughs> and it's funny. So when they started to get a lot of the research around this drug, the average increase in lung function was about 10%. Some people were experiencing up to 40. Um, people were dropping the amount of tablets they needed to take in some cases. People were putting on the weight that they'd struggled to and developing like they'd struggled to their whole life. Me personally, I put on about five kilos of muscle in five months. So my body just wasn't fighting for its nutrition anymore. But little things like from the age of 13, I can't remember a day where I didn't have like green thick mucus in my lungs, which I know is gross to hear, but it was just a natural reality of my everyday. And I had an infection in my lungs for 13 years that is now cleared. So little things like waking up in the morning and not needing to cough whilst that for me was just second nature to not feel that anymore. What a blessing. And so I said to my mates, just like on the cusp of getting access to this drug, because we fought for a long time for it. 
And I remember saying, you are fucked. Like, I've been on your heels for the last couple of years, <laughs> running, like, in the gym. Like, you just thought you had a chance. Now you have got no chance. <laughs> I'm about to level up like crazy. Oh, so all my mates have got their hand out for a little bit of spare tricaster. I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Oh, dude, that's too good, man. Um, For sure. And I'm... What's it like for you now? Actually, we'll get into the marathon running and I want to know what the experience was from that first one. And then we'll chat about the 50K that you just did without having bleeding lungs. Because I think what you've done over the last couple of years is, is tremendous. Um, but to rewind a little bit, I want to go back to the start. Now, your parents were in hospital with you as I believe you were a couple of weeks old when the doctor um, diagnosed you with, with, with CF. Talk to me about the conversation that doctor had with your parents. You know, it's funny, Dill, because people say that you can't prepare for child, like for your first child. My parents thought they could. Like they had great jobs, great financial security. They built the dream family home from scratch. Like they'd been a part of the building process. This is where like the love and the security and the foundation of my childhood was going to begin. It was all going to be amazing. And they had everything planned. They had no debt. Like they were in the perfect position as prepared as you think you could be to have children. And there's that Mike Tyson quote that I love, which is everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And they didn't realize, but my diagnosis was like the ultimate uppercut, right? So to sit in there and have what seems to be a really healthy firstborn child. And, you know, my mom walked out of hospital with no complications after and, but just something wasn't quite right in those early few weeks. And um, at three weeks of age, every baby, really for the last 20, 25, probably 20 to 30 years now, goes through the Guthrie's test, which is just a standard test where they find a bunch of the genetical issues that could come up. CF is one of those things they test for. And to be diagnosed with CF at three weeks of age just, like, completely shocked my parents. They didn't know what it was. They'd heard whispers of this before. My, I think it was my nan's cousin's grandson had CF and was very unwell. Um, he was about 10 years older than me at the time. So their first real insight into CF was not a very positive one. And they rocked up to the first cystic fibrosis specialist appointment at Westmead Hospital. Um, and I won't say the doctor's name, but, and I don't even know if he's still around, but he sat my parents down on a cold autumn's morning and gave them an even colder reception with literally the words, and this is no, like, this is no Mayo or GST. This is exactly what he said. He said, your son would be better off with a terminal illness that would kill him or he'd get over. Cystic fibrosis will ruin his life. And you can imagine being firstborn parents, like hearing that news. And I remember asking my parents, my parents didn't tell me this for a long time. And it was only really a couple of years ago as I embarked on this mission of doing what I've been doing recently that they shared this story with me. And my dad got up, grabbed my mum. My mum was holding me. They walked straight out. My dad walked back in there, got maybe a little bit more physical than he should have and said to that doctor, you'll never see my wife, my son or I again. That's not the attitude we're going to have. You can get fucked. They went straight to the reception and said, transfer all of our files to Sydney Children's Hospital. You'll never have to see us again. They found a doctor by the name of Dr. John Morton. And Dr. John Morton shared the vision that they shared for my life. And it's funny, as I recount those early years of my life, years that I wasn't there to fully experience, you know, as a baby. I realized that that's the greatest lesson I could have ever learned, that what you believe is what you'll become. And far before I knew it, as we spoke about so much in our episode, my parents believed 
and manifested and visualized a life for me that was a life nothing short of greatness. And essentially those first few years were developed off that foundation, that belief. Mm. And your, your parents, um, something that I found amazing and I'm sure was a lot of inspiration for you in starting 42 yeah. for CF, which we'll get into, but didn't your dad, with the help of your mother, run, I've got it written down here, 212 kilometres in three days to raise awareness yeah. and funds for cystic fibrosis? Yeah, he did. So I was two years of age at the time and they wanted to just do their part, you know, as any parent in that position would. You go, well, you know, we've got the daily task. And, and people don't understand these days it's very different. But back then they were doing like four hours of hands-on physio a day. Every time I wanted to eat something, they had to break open a – because, you know, when you're a newborn baby, you can't swallow tablets. So they had to break open a capsule, um, which is a digestive enzyme, put the little digestive enzyme beads into fruit, um, fruit puree just for me to have that so then I could have breast milk. Like there is so much to this that people don't fully understand, like the work and the sacrifice. It's why I have the love and adulation I have for my parents now and it's why they'll always be my greatest heroes is because of that. I'm probably going to get emotional here today because I can feel it. Um, but, yeah, so I was two when my dad and mum decided to have a charity event and my dad, I've got a tattoo on my left arm of Hercules, the statue, which is for my dad. Um, he's the guy, even the way that the tattoo is done, he's looking down and, you know, it's the view of looking up to him because he's the role model that I've looked up to in so many ways. He decided to set off with my uncle Tez and a bunch of other guys, like a few marathon runners and a few mates to run 212 kilometres in three days. And mum organised a bunch of sort of like raffle dinners and um, trivia nights and they had, you know, sporting figures donate um, sort of like signed jerseys and memorabilia and, you know, a bunch of people come and buy tickets for tables at this event, but it was all surrounded around, you know, my dad and my uncle and these other guys running 65, 68 kilometres a day for three days. And I talked to my dad and my dad was no long distance runner. He was, you know, a footy player, um, quite a good footy player locally and, you know, gave up on his dream of playing footy to support a family and build a house and, you know, there's a photo which dad actually gave to me the other day and Soph was sitting next to me on the lounge when he gave it to me. It was a um, cutout from a paper article that looks very vintage from 24 years ago and it was a photo of my dad and I sitting down and the jumper that he had on when he finished the race that day, there was a photo of the two of us. I've still got that jumper today. It's like my prized possession. And it's funny because all these little things and all these moments where they raised money and done all those things – for me, just the sacrifice that they made for me to be as healthy as I am now, like I owe my life to them. You know, I had the the most severe style of cystic fibrosis, yet I've had the most positive outcome. And I owe so much of that to them. And I just can't, you know, it's why for me, probably you spoke on our podcast about what you didn't realise at the time, but a day in your journey being the best day of your life. It's why for me, the best day of my life was crossing the finish line of my first marathon because I think it was a message for them that every bit of sacrifice and hard work has led to me now being in control. And I think for them it was almost like that day of weight lifted off their shoulders to go that no matter what happens, he'll find a way through. It's why on the day of my first marathon I had a um, bit of a lassoplast wrapped around my arm because I knew it was going to be tough and I definitely wasn't as prepared as I could have been. And um, I just wrote on the elastoplast. For all you've done today, I'll make you proud. And I had my dad, mum and sister's names on the inside of it. And, you know, I looked at that so many times throughout the event just when I was struggling, when I was in the pain cave, 
And after the event, I couldn't take it off because it just meant so much to me. So I got it tattooed on her wrist and um, I, like I owe everything to them. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them. I love that. Um, what do you think's the biggest lesson or piece of advice or message that your parents have given you? Just to never believe, never to believe negativity, to be positive, to, to understand that you are the master of your own destiny, to... I don't know, we spoke a little bit about films um, just off camera before. There's a film called A Knight's Tale, um, Heath Ledger, a classic. And in the early stages of that film, uh, a boy who was not supposed to have a future because he was from poverty, he was from a rough life, you know, goes off on an, on an adventure early in life, a sacrifice his parent made for him to go and live a better life, you know, much similar to what mine did. And he says to his dad, Dad, can a man change his stars? And his dad said, a man can do anything if he believes enough. And for me, that was the message of my childhood. It's a message of who I am today and what I do today to, you know, it's a reason why I'm so, you know, people sometimes may get sick of me pushing that message, but it's so important to me that what my parents believed is not what every other parent would believe. Like I look back and I think I couldn't, I couldn't be mad at my parents had they have heard those first negative words from a specialist and believe them. You know, that's someone who's a, a specialist in their field who deals with CF every day, you know, if they'd believe that and that was the view that they had, I couldn't have, couldn't have argued with that. But the fact that they were positive, I think not every parent would be like that. And now with my 26 years of wisdom that they've given me, um, how can I be that positive uplifting character for those who maybe don't see the positive side of it yet? How can I uplift and inspire hope in others through my story? And, you know, that message that they've passed on to me has become my life mission. And you think that day that you crossed the line for your first marathon was actually one of the best days in their lives as well? For sure. You know, I look back, my dad's a pretty – my mum's my an emotional character. You know, on the inside of my arm I've got a guardian angel for my mum because she's just so caring and protective and, you know, it's just such a loving human. I, I love her dearly and, you know – I remember finishing that event and you've just seen, I'm sure you would have seen videos all over my social of it, like the tears coming from me, my dad, my mum, my sister, it's just <laughs> so many. And I, I look back at those videos today and I still cry every time I look at them. Um, it just meant the world to me and I think it meant the world to them. And, it, um, you know, I've never, I've never really seen my dad cry um, outside of that day, you know, once or twice, but it just, yeah, it's it's such an emotional thing, I think. You know, even my younger sister, like we, her name's Shania, we call her Sissy. Everyone who affectionately knows Shania calls her Sissy. It's kind of been a nickname because Shania's hard to say when you're a kid. And I remember I, I say that Shania's the greatest gift I ever received in life. Like I look at, I look at those first early years and I just remember loving her so much and just wanting to be like a protective older brother. And I've recently, I've been writing a book, so I've been writing about my early years and writing a lot about her and I don't think she'll ever appreciate and I read a chapter to her the other day which is dedicated to her and saying that like in the early years of my life I credit my self-esteem to her there was whilst my parents were incredibly supportive and uplifting of everything I believed in and wanted to do you know I was a six-year-old kid or five-year-old kid as I was going to school and you know I was a five-year-old kid who took 30 tablets a day and was clearly different everyone else and I think it would be easy and what is the case for most people with CF is they go to school they're so nervous about being an outcast that they don't take their tablets and it makes them sick and they have complications 
you know, I remember sitting up at the breakfast table of a morning and my sister crying because she couldn't take tablets like me. So mum and dad used to have to buy a flavoured vitamin so she could have a few tablets while I had mine. And whilst that's a funny story to recall, what it done for me at the time was it made me think that CF was a badge of honour. It was something that if my sister wanted to be like me, the person who I loved more than anything in life, you know, wanted to be like me and looked up to me, then why shouldn't I be proud of who I am? And so my sister done everything to build my self-esteem in the early years. And I, I just look back on that childhood and I think, I just, I just wish everyone could have the same experience I did. And I would not change it for the world. Like if you could give me a pill tomorrow where I didn't have CF and still live the same childhood, I, I wouldn't take it. I just love the experience that I had. And it's just made me who I am. I, I recall, you know, recently I was doing a course, um, a bit of a personal development course through Mojo Crow, Ben Crow's um, mindset platform. And his team were kind enough to, to give that to me because I've been in contact with them a few times. And one of the first questions is all about like, who am I? And it asked me to recall my earliest childhood memory. And I really sat there for a couple of hours thinking about this. It's the day where I had COVID, just stuck in the house. So I'm just going to really sit on this question. And I remember recalling a memory. I reckon I would have been three years of age. And my parents confirmed I would have been about three at the time. And it was like a, a sunny summer's day. I remember exactly what I was wearing. Stripy shirt, navy blue corduroy cap, overalls outside sweating up a storm pushing a fake lawnmower next to dad pushing the real one and I retired a little bit early you know, as a hard day's work for me mum called me inside made me my favorite sandwich which was a salmon and beetroot sandwich cut up into quarters triangles of course and she put it in front of me I remember giving me a kiss on the head and I remember the question asked me in this course to explain how I felt in that moment and it was really the story of my childhood wrapped up in one answer it was loved appreciated valuable um, and supported and like I had a place in the world like there were there was nothing for me to worry about like I could be myself and it was just when I lit, sat there and read that and looked at it I thought that's everything that I'm trying to achieve as a man today at 26 you know to be valuable to have meaning to be loved to be who I am and I'm just so grateful I just yeah I can't speak any more positively on my childhood there's just nothing I would change and that obviously just seeing you happy and healthy is obviously all, all the everything I'm sure that your parents wanted. But that moment when you cross that line and they can see this is the beginning of you starting your own journey to becoming the man you're going to be and leaving your mark on the world. Mm. It's really like all their hard work was worth it. Like it already For was, sure. but it's like even more just solidifies how mm. special, like how important everything that they was that they did was and how great a job that they did. And I'm sure like no parents are perfect, but they would have poured so much sacrifice into you and to see everything you do from this point and the impact and the ripple you have on the world, at the end of the day, it would not have happened if it wasn't for your parents. It's so true. And it, it's funny because probably one of the things that I've struggled with a little bit off the back of it the last couple of years is I got a call to say that I've been nominated for an award at Government House. Um, that the Governor General and his wife would be presenting these awards. And um, I was nominated for my national service to CF. And I remember when I got the call to say that I'd been nominated and invited down for the dinner, I almost felt like a little bit of imposter syndrome because I thought oh, it shouldn't be me accepting an award if I get it, like it should be my parents. And I remember talking to my parents about it and I said, I kind of feel bad because I feel like it should be you guys. Like I'm just, I'm almost the messenger. Like, you know, you guys have done the hard work. And, you know, they said that everything we've done, like, for you up until this point, to see you accept an award like that, to cross a finish line, 
of a marathon to be healthy, to be doing what you're doing is just like a dream come true for us. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very special, man. It's, you know, I'm very thankful. Um, and on that, you finding like your purpose yeah, and everything that you're going to continue to do from there. Um, I want to ask you about CF, uh, 42 for CF and it seems like that was kind of the start of you stepping into this, this man that you are today and, and will continue to become, but talk to me about where you were in life and when, when you got this idea, um, for 42 for CF and what inspired you to create this fundraiser and this movement to really raise awareness and over $105,000, the last figure I saw for cystic fibrosis, which is fucking incredible. Um, but yeah, what, where were you in life and what inspired you to, to make that happen? Yeah, I guess to, to answer that properly, I probably got to track back to a couple of years before the event. I was always, um, as you know, you would kind of expect from a podcast, I was a bit of a chatty fella, mm-hmm. always loved a conversation. And my parents always said that like my first word was a sentence. So they were like, you just never stop talking. And just everywhere we went, I just always wanted to ask people questions and chat. And I got to a stage where I was, probably similar to what you said in our episode on my show, like I was good at school, but I didn't love school. Like I, I just, like you said, knew how to retain information and kind of got through on natural intelligence yeah. until year 10. And I got to a point where the path for me at the time was either like to go to uni and do sports science. Um, we'll stay around for the HSC, then go to uni. And I never, I think I never got less than 99% in a sports science test and subject. And I was really encouraged to do that. But at the time, I just didn't love the format of school. And, you know, I wanted to be practical and be out in the world meeting people. So I left school, become a personal trainer for a couple of years and loved how that allowed me to develop relationships with people from all walks of life. And clients who were 14, I was 17 at the time, had clients who were 14 up until 84. So I had such a vast array of people. And a big part of being a PT is, yes, you're training someone to move towards a goal that um, they're driven to try and achieve, um, you know, and just positive health and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But for me, I just love developing relationships with people. And I remember my nan at the time, who's now passed, said to me, she said, I should be in real estate. You could sell ice to Eskimos and you're a great chatter. And I'm like, oh, yeah, real estate. Like I've always liked houses. You know, I had somewhat of a a thought about maybe doing architecture while I was at school because I was quite a good drawer when I was younger. And I just thought, you know, drafting houses and stuff would be exciting and design and and I thought, oh, this real estate thing could be for me and kind of fell into it. Like I remember getting a job pretty quickly. Like there wasn't a job going at this company, but through a family connection, I got a meeting with the director of this company and they're like, oh, mate, like you're fit for this role. Like it's, it's who you are. Fell into real estate and loved it for the first year because like anything you're learning in that first year, it's exciting, um, you know, and, and being, I was 20 years of age in my first year, you know, you're seeing, you know, at the time following guys like Conor McGregor who are posting photos of their Rolls Royces and their nice houses. And I'm like, oh, well, like this is a money career. Like the best real estate agents make the most money and, you know, they have nice cars and nice houses and they go on nice trips. And I started to get very financially driven. And after my first year, I was noticed by a guy down in Melbourne who hired me to go move down there and spend a year working there and then that sort of started to show a few flaws for me. Like everyone around me was earning really good money and I kind of got stuck doing a job I didn't love too much. But being away from my people, out of my environment and then starting to take my health for granted and being a little bit complacent because really up until 18, my health hadn't tested me. 
and even after that first test, which was a bout of pneumonia and a bit of bleeding in the lungs, which was scary for my first ever lung bleed, I kind of bounced back pretty quickly because I was pretty resilient. I'd been very healthy up until that point. And I was just like, oh, you know, my health will never be a problem because, like, I've got it sorted. I'm in control. And so I started to take that for granted and then I ended up moving back home and I thought something doesn't feel right about this career anymore, but I've got to give it a crack my way. So for the last year and a half of it, I went back to where I originally started work, but with an agreement that I could wear whatever I wanted to work every day and I was allowed to market, sell, say whatever I wanted to say and just be completely me. And so I barely worked in the office, like really outside of the first couple of months back, like you wouldn't have seen me in the office. I'd sat at cafes, I'd be at people's houses, I was walking into houses in a pair of shorts, sneakers and a t-shirt, I had tattoos, like I swore, like people were like, I was kind of like a black sheep really in real estate at the time. And I was being very me and because of that I had great relationships with my clients, like even to this day I'll bump into old clients, like I know their kids' names, their kids know me, like they listen to the podcast, like it's it's so connected because it was so real. But I always felt so indebted to these clients because, you know, selling a house is a huge part of your life. Like it can mean the difference between you getting a family holiday. Like that result can be the difference between your family gets a holiday next year or they don't. Your kids get to go to the school you'd love to send them to. So I was so indebted to like getting the best result possible. But I was falling out of love with the business. So I was taking such, it was putting such pressure on me and like my happiness and my fulfillment and I just remember getting to a point where I just hated the job. Like it was like I love the people I work with and I've still got great relationships with all of them. But it was so hard to get up in the morning. And there were days where I'd just sit in my car before work and just cry. And I was like, why am I so upset? Like I'm, I'm somewhat healthy. You know, my health was starting to have a few holes and it was on a bit of a downward slide. You know, but like I'm, you know, I'm not terminally ill like I'm happy like I should be happy I'm at work I've got good people around me good friends good family I'm somewhat starting to earn good money all the goals that I set when I started real estate I'm ticking off I'm like why does this not feel like it should have and I just felt so lost and I remember just thinking like fire out the kid who like had insane purpose believed he could change the world was healthy like happy bouncing off the walls wanted to like do everything he could and like attack life he's just gone and you know I just I just didn't look like me anymore I didn't feel like me anymore and I got really sick and ended up in hospital for a couple of weeks with a lung infection and I remember being in hospital and meeting an old fella who my mum had actually sold a car to and she introduced us as we bumped into him in the hallway one day his name was Ernie and because of my CF they'd always put me in a, a solo room in the hospital, in the public system. And Ernie had terminal cancer, but he was in a room with like four or five other old fellas. And I remember just saying to him, mate, if you ever want to get out of your room for some space, come down and have a yarn. And so every day at two o'clock from that day onwards, the tea and Vicky cart would come around. I'd get my cup of tea, a couple of biscuits. About two minutes later, they'd pull up to Ernie's room and he'd come down for a chat with his tea and Vicky's and knock on the door. And he used to sit beside my bed every day and we'd have a yarn for about an hour. And he had a very interesting life, Ernie, as a prison guard for like people like Ivan Milat. So he had a lot of stories to tell. But the one thing that after we got past the surface level stories and we started to talk life from a guy who was terminally ill, um, had children, grandchildren that he loved and who were there every day to see him, I started to realise that our note of conversation never had anything to do with materialism. 
Um, he never spoke about the house he lived in, the car he drove, the holidays that he went on and splashed cash. He just spoke about the people he loved and the memories he created with them. And I remember thinking, I'm 23. I'm so out of touch with a sense of purpose. I'm so driven by money and financial endeavours. Like, if this isn't a sign to figure out who I am and what mark I want to leave on the world, I don't know what is. And at the time, I'd asked my mum if I could read a book that I'd heard a lot about that she actually had at home called The Alchemist. And she'd given it to me in hospital. I'm a fucking shit reader. So I just didn't read it. I left it in my bag. But I knew that something needed to change in my life. And as I went back to work and started to try and shift the way that I felt at work and try different things and form some routine and discipline in life, I would just go to a cafe every morning at about seven and I would read for half an hour before I started working. And I started to really love this book. And for me, the message of the book, for anyone who's read it, will know The Alchemist and I'm sure you all love it. The message of the book was that the treasure in life is in the simple things. It's the people we meet, the experiences we have. It's, it's in the quest, the journey. But you never actually appreciate the simplicity of that treasure until you go on the quest of trying to find what life is meant to look like for you. That was the message I got from the book. And as I, I read the last page of that book, I put it down and I walked into my boss's office that morning and quit my job. And it sounds crazy to say because I was only four episodes into the podcast journey at the time, which to me was kind of like, yeah, maybe I can make something of this, but I just love sharing story. And I'd had this lifelong passion with storytelling and, you know, I was rediscovering it again and rediscovering the excitement of what it felt like to share my own story and to connect with other people's. And I thought this for me, you know, quitting my job, I had like my bosses asked me to stay another two months and not tell anyone just to see that I was making the right decision and slowly transition out. You know, they sat me down and said, we think you can be a guy to make a million dollars in gross commission a year in Wollongong, like one of the youngest to ever do it. They were like, are you sure this is the decision you want to make? And I said, it's honestly, it's just not about money for any, it's not about money for me anymore. It's about living a life that actually means something. And, you know, I'm miserable right now. Money's not going to change that. And as I left my job, I just bought a house the week before. I had no way of paying a mortgage. (coughs) COVID hit as I quit. And I remember being sat in my home with no way of paying my mortgage. And I was living with my old man at the time, still am. And I remember thinking... I don't know what the future looks like, but I can feel that ambition again. I can feel that drive. I can feel that connection to a purpose. And to sort of skip forward and answer the question that you originally asked, after trying to get my health in check over the course of, you know, I had a real estate dad rig, right? Like I just wasn't happy with my physique. I felt so unhealthy. I thought I need to get back on track and be that healthy guy that I know I can be. And so I started walking every day. I'd jump in the ocean pool and do a few laps through COVID when you could you know, get that hour outside. And I bumped into a couple of mates and one said, hey, you're up early every day. We've got this run club. It's called the Active Boys Run Club. You should come down 6 a.m. on Sunday and do a 5K. And I said, fucking 5Ks. I hate running. I don't think I'd be able – I've never run 5Ks in my life, maybe once. Like no chance. And he goes, mate, I'll shout you a nice long black after and we'll have a swim and I thought oh I might be able to get around that so I remember it was coming up to the Sunday I think it was a Thursday and I thought maybe I'll just go for like a 2k run to see how I fare got 800 meters in took my sneakers off put them in the back of the car 
I developed such negative habits in the course of that real estate career, you know, not looking after my health that I just had no discipline. I had no willpower or drive. And I remember thinking, how am I going to run 5Ks on Sunday? Well, I managed to sort of struggle through my first four weeks at Run Club and, you know, got to a point where I started to enjoy the grind of like having a goal that felt lofty at the time and like getting through all the pain caves and getting through, you know, the absolute hustle of it to get it done. And it was on the fourth Sunday I'd run and just something felt wrong in my lungs. Like they just felt loose, almost like almost like there was water moving around, which is such like it's hard to describe that feeling, but something wasn't right. And I was sitting there having a coffee like an hour or two after the run with mates and I coughed and I could just taste that metallic taste of blood. And I was like, oh, that's blood. That's not good. Went to the public toilets and just started coughing it up. I didn't want to tell my mates because I didn't want to freak them out like – when people hear that you're coughing up blood, everyone panics. I thought, oh, maybe I can just sip it down with a coffee. doesn't work that way. Ended up in emergency and I ended up in emergency three days in a row. And it was on the third night they decided to do a bunch of extensive testing and I was sitting in the hospital bed. It's 2 a.m. in the morning. Dad's sitting beside me and we're laughing about that photo of him crossing the finish line of the event 24 years, well, at the time, 22 years before. And I remember just saying to Dad, just I don't know where it come from, but I just said, you know what, like I feel like my whole life, my mindset towards CF, the mindset that was born off the back of yours and mum's hard work is what's allowed me to face these challenges and come out the other side better. But it feels like this time that mindset needs to be shared with others. Maybe it's time not just to recover for me but to do it for other people too. And I said, you know what, I'm going to run a marathon by the year's end. I'm going to raise some money if I can. But more importantly, I'm going to share that message that nothing is impossible for people with CF. And... I remember leaving the hospital the next day, posting it on socials a couple of days after. And then I was like, well, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out how to train for it. Connected with a guy who's become a great mate of mine, Ben Seymour, who coached me through the whole thing for free and come and ran it with me. Um, you know, connected with a group of mates who wanted to be there to support me through it. So there were 13 of us that ran it. And, you know, this event that was just going to be a thing, me and a few mates running around the block and sharing it on socials become the first official marathon in Wollongong's history. Um, CF Australia endorsed that we're on board. We had a team of people planning for it. And in the first year we raised, I think it was $51,000 or $56,000. And it was the most beautiful journey and experience of my life and continues to be because it, it's taught me so much about myself and what I'm capable of. Wow, man. Um, so many things I want to ask you about that journey that we went through. Start off, I want to go back to where you were and we'll work our way forward to running that race. Um, but you were in the real estate uh, space. You said you weren't enjoying it. You didn't, you didn't even really like being in the office. First of all, like was it an environmental thing? Was the energy just not congruent with you? Why did you feel like it was best to take yourself out of, those, out of the office as much as you could? You know what? It's, like, it's funny because I still get on so good with all the people. Like some of my best mates are still working there. Um, like I see my old bosses all the time and get on great to this day. I used to like rent a car space off one of my bosses just until like a couple of weeks ago in my building. And I'd go in every month to give the rent money to my old boss. And like, I was always caught up for an hour cause I was chatting <laughs> everyone. And yeah. even to the, like, I passed the guy who used to run the company just a week ago down the beach. And he's like, when are you coming back? I'm like, no time soon, mate. But <laughs> like, I've still got a great relationship with them, but it was just for me. I just thought, life has to be more than this. It has to be more than just making money. Like it has to be connected to something that's bigger. 
and as a kid, like I always said, I'd change the world and you know, I laugh about it now. I used to think at the time that was becoming Batman. Now I realise that in the last couple of years, all you ever need to be is yourself. Like you're your own superhero if you believe in your story. And and I just wanted to get reconnected with that and feel excited to get up and go to work, to feel excited for the challenges that lie ahead and have the willpower to push through them because I actually believed in what I was doing. And it's not that I didn't believe in real estate because I was heavily grounded by my values and my morals while I was in it. But I just... I just knew that there was something bigger for me. There was a calling outside of the work. And I know plenty of people, plenty of my mates sort of this day who love real estate, love the job and they feel very called to it and they feel very driven for it. But it just wasn't me. Mm. And it just took a little bit of time to discover that. You know, like the alchemist, I had to go on that quest to find who I was. And it's so interesting what your mate Ernie, was it Ernie yeah. was his name, right? What he was saying is so true. And like as he realised what he was talking about, it was never uh, the wins he had with his career, the car he drove, the house he had. It's always about the simpler moments, right? And it's so, you hear that and it made me think, wow, that's so true. But then when we're caught up living life where so much of our time is, okay, what's going on right now? How can I get from here to there? What, what do I need to do? How much money do I need to earn? It's all so much focused on the external. Mm. But at the end of the day, and, and it's so true, when you're, you know, reflecting on your life in the, in the, in the last few weeks or months, you're not even going to care about any of that stuff. For sure. It's, it's interesting because not many people in life get like a, not many people get to experience a moment where they think it might be their last. I remember the first time my lungs bled when I was 18 and I'd been told, I'd been told by doctors, if this ever happened, it's crucial you get to hospital ASAP, could mean life or death. And I remember coughing up a lot of fresh blood, being at home with my dad at the time and being really unwell and, and racing to the hospital. You know, the quickest way to get there was just jump in our car. And I remember as, as I was racing there, I remember calling my mum and my sister who worked at the same place at the time and just saying to my sister, like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm coughing up a lot of blood. You need to get to the hospital ASAP. And the first, the only thing in my mind at that time was not, what am I doing for work? How do I look? You know, you know what clothes am I wearing? It was, I just hope all my people are in one room and I get to like tell them I love them before whatever happens, happens. And it's the most terrifying experience, but it's an experience I'm very grateful for because even, you know, and it's funny because you can have that experience at 18, what some would call a watershed moment, and then just still find the wrong path. And sometimes you need to have a few of them until you actually realise that message for what it is. But it's why now when I talk about, and we spoke about it before, ideal life, when I look at what an ideal life looks like, for me there's four pillars. It's my people, it's meaningful work, it's my health, and it's my environment. And I look at those four things and everything in my life comes back to, is it connected to my purpose? And how do my four pillars look? If I approach that, if I go down that path, what do they feel like? And, you know, like it's the simple things, always is. Do you follow Stephen Bartlett? I do. Love Stephen Bartlett. Yeah, it's like what he says. Um, he, the goal of a happy life is like doing meaningful things for the people I love. Like if you break it down, sure. it's that simple. And I think we can all be guilty of that. My, myself especially being naturally ambitious, driven person, sometimes you can get caught up in chasing things. Um, and it's good to be ambitious and, and go for your goals for sure. I'm, I'm the first one to advocate for that. But I probably could, could do better in slowing down and appreciating what I have sometimes. Not, not that I don't spend maybe spending taking some more time off to spend with family and 
you know, enjoy those moments because even me, when I reflect on the best moments of my life, it's that like the, the most special, obviously I shared the one previously about the day my life changed with the business. That was incredibly exciting. But like, I don't like whenever things go really bad, you think, okay, what really matters? It's so, it's so few things. It's the people around you. That's the main thing. And then what, what is your purpose in life? What are you here to achieve? Um, you also mentioned something I want to ask you about. We, we chatted about something similar previously uh, on your podcast, but you were sitting in your car and you said you were in tears, not, not knowing why. Um, what has your relationship with mental health been throughout your entire life and has it changed much yeah. as a kid through to your teens or through to now? It's interesting. It's I grew up with the toughest old man on the planet, very, like, very loving, very compassionate guy. My old man is so loving and compassionate, but, you know, he was like a – tough nut footy player, yeah. like my old man, like, so when I look at like my work ethic, it just pales in comparison to my parents. Parents both worked multiple jobs. Mum worked two. My dad worked three jobs plus got played to play footy and train and slept two hours a night. So my dad to this day takes a still knocks to sleep two or three hours, just like so conditioned because it's all he done. And when I look at that, I just think like, if you'd said to that guy at the time, like, how's your mental health? He'd be like, I don't have time to think about that. You know what I mean? Just had done what I had to do to provide. Same for my mum. Like my mum is probably more in touch emotionally um, because I think that's a natural female characteristic. It's one of the things we love about women is they're usually more in touch with their emotions and with um, things like empathy. And, you know, it's something that I've had, I guess, over the course of the, the podcast journey become, I guess, more in tune with hearing people share their stories and understanding people's different experiences has taught me a lot about my own mental health. And whilst I've never, I would never say that I've been essentially depressed or struggled with my mental health, I've definitely felt lost or stuck. And for me now, it comes back to all the time, like I probably didn't have the tools to, to be equipped to deal with it personally at the time. And that's why it meant dramatic change. And it's funny, you spoke before in our podcast about the journey of finding something you're passionate about work-wise and slowly progressing out of um, steady or stable income into what you love. I just done the Jump opposite. In. And, and like, whilst it's ultimately it's worked for me, like a huge challenge for me, we're on the life money, love podcast. Money's a huge challenge because I don't have any stability. Even to this point, like in all transparency, maybe this is TMI for people. I ain't like a grand this year. Like I've, I've committed, like I sold my house cause I couldn't afford to keep it anymore. I was on the bones of my ass. Like, I've basically chewed through a lot of the savings that I made off, you know, that growth market to be committed to what I love. And that's a sacrifice I had to willingly make to, to go on this adventure of life and to throw myself into to what I love and feel, you know, directed by my purpose to do. But at the time, it just the only thing I knew to do to positively improve my mental health was to completely tip everything upside down. Man, I, I love that. And I'm an, actually, I'm an advocate for it. And I believe I would be the same way. But for some people, I just have too much. There, there is fear and responsibilities holding them back. But if you're at that point and you feel like, because sometimes if you're feeling so low, massive and immediate action is the only thing that can really sure. change your life and your state, mate, I'm all for it. For sure. So I completely, like you said, massive and immediate reaction. I changed everything. And... I went from being inactive to super active. I went from being in a structured, what could be somewhat called a structured nine to five to pursuing something that felt not even entrepreneurial, but very passion driven. Um, and 
as I started to understand more about who I was in that process, I got connected with this idea of purpose and started to really explore it. And for me, I think purpose has been the biggest factor in like giving me very good mental health or the right practical tools to, you know, maintain good mental health. And I guess I learned a lot of my, a lot of my understanding of purpose was developed off, you know, listening to Jay Shetty, who's just an amazing character. I'd love to meet Jay one day. And Jay speaks about your purpose being finding something you're passionate about and then asking how you can use that in service of others. And for me, I knew I was passionate about telling stories and passionate about sharing my own and then thought, well, you know, I can do that by sharing it through the podcast. It was the easiest platform for me to do that. And so I crafted this purpose for my life that was, you know, to uplift and inspire hope in others through story. And then everything in my life come back to checking that. So if I'm struggling with something, okay, is this avenue of my life allowing me to uplift and inspire hope in others through story? Yes, okay, I've got to do everything I can to protect it. And I'll figure the rest out. So I worked other jobs on the side. I used to drive, one of my mates started a business called Two Brothers Produce. And um, it was like a fruit and veg to door service. And I used to drive the van, the big transit vans on Mondays and Tuesdays and deliver fruit around the northern suburbs, Illyalora. Mate, I loved it. <laughs> like I would just sit in the van. And I remember just because I was so connected to what my purpose was in my podcast work with the marathons, the fact that this allowed me to do that just made work feel so easy and I felt so grateful for it. And, you know, everything I do now when it comes to my mental health is, you know, what I've learned in the space of that two and a half years, which is have discipline. You said discipline equals freedom. I'm a massive fan of Jocko Willink and the discipline of like waking up a quarter to five every day. There's times where that changes. Like might be a day like this morning, 5.30 sleep in, just felt like a, a bag of garbage after running 50Ks on Monday and, needed a bit of a snooze in and just a morning to myself. So I'd done that. But like most of the time it's get up and move. Matthew McConaughey in his book Green Lights talks about just breaking a sweat for an hour a day. I love to break a sweat every day and do something positive for my body. Um, makes me feel grateful, the ability to move, you know, regardless of all the challenges that have tried to stop me from that. Um, it's about being connected to somewhat of a meaningful message or piece of work that day. So it's, you know, what story am I telling today? Who am I connecting with? How can I have a positive impact on them? Or how can I listen to something that has a positive impact on me or absorb something from that angle? It's, you know, being connected with the people that I love. And most days, whether it's my family, myself, my mates, I do something every day to be connected to those people that I love and adore. And that has the most positive impact on my mental health. And then it's always coming back to asking myself, which is a big theme of our podcast on my show, which was, you know, like embracing your authentic story and, you know, definitely it's probably one of my bigger challenges and somewhat ties into the mental health. But just like I think for a, an extrovert who, you know, put me in front of 20,000 people on a stage and like I won't break a sweat. I'm so comfortable. I've never spoken in front of 20,000 people, so maybe that's talking out of my ass. <laughs> but put me on a stage to deliver a keynote, put me in front of someone to, to do a podcast in a situation that for most people would be out of their comfort zone in public. I'm so comfortable, but when it comes to inside my own head, I'm probably very insecure. And so for me, that's probably been one of the things that I need to have better positive self-talk. I need to be uh, more self-accepting, sort of stop taking shreds off myself at times. And, and probably that's the one thing that has challenged, I wouldn't say my mental health, but my, it's challenged my self-acceptance. Like we spoke about in yours again, um, 
if, if that negative thought isn't serving you and it's not something to be aware of in order to grow, then why let it exist in your mind? For sure. And it's, it's crazy because it holds you back, right? Mm-hmm. Like I just remember for the longest time and it's, I'm going to give producer Soph, AKA, she's not Another the producer. Another shout she's, out. She's, producer <laughs> Soph, killing it today. <laughs> killing it today. When I met Soph, I remember for the longest time just thinking, I'm never going to find someone that I can fall in love with. Like I'm never going to find someone that is accepting of all the challenges that I may face one day whilst life is really good now. My health is great. You know, imagine sitting down with someone telling them about everything I've been through the last two and a half years and getting them to be accepting of that. Um, them feeling it at ease with the fact that I'm telling them I'm in control now, um, you know, to then say that there's a risk that one day when children is a question and, and something we look to do in life that potentially see if it's something we have to think about with them. And the fact that, hey, I don't really make any money at the moment, but I'm pursuing something I love. And, you know, how many people have the pipe dream of being a podcast host and a speaker, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, whilst I've got all the self-belief in the world that one day you talk about manifesting, I honestly believe I'll be sitting in front of Oprah talking about a book that I've written or a project that I've launched. You know, I believe that my life is going to be extraordinary to sit there and pitch the life that I live and the experiences that I've had to someone and say, hey, I want you to love me and be accepting of those things. I honestly believed I'd never find it. And I'd kind of given up hope and it was seeing a beautiful smile on someone's Instagram story one day, clicking on the safe's profile and, and like literally just being absolutely terrified to send a message and get a first date that I think for me it's, it's allowed me to crush some of my insecurities and crush the thing that I didn't think I knew I could somewhat be except and I was very accepting and you know where one of my mates another shout out to um we call him brother Fune Ty Grieve one of my closest mates sat me down one day and said we had we have very deep morning coffee conversation like from the to the outsider they'd go what is going on there that's like a therapy session but we're always, we're always in the most loving way, challenging each other on how we can be the best version of ourselves and trying to uplift each other. And he's probably my most consistent friend that I see. And I remember one morning we sat down on a Saturday at Lee and Me, our favourite cafe, um, where the studio of the podcast used to be. It's now that he's um, headquarters for his business. And we sat and he said to me, we spoke about limiting beliefs. We wanted to bring up what we've both seen as a few limiting beliefs for each other and challenge ourselves on that. And he sat me down and when it come to my turn, he said, it, I struggled to understand how you can wear your story as a badge of honour when you stand on stage to inspire and uplift others, when you sit in a podcast, when you run a marathon. But when it comes to your personal relationships and your romantic life, how you struggle to see how that inspiration, that ability to uplift isn't something that someone else would accept. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, fuck, he's so right. And and it's taken time, but it's probably taken meeting so to allow me to fully accept that and lose the insecurity of it. So, you know, it's it's funny. I can't even remember what started us on that point, but um, that insecurity is something that I've struggled with a lot and accepting my story in that space. And to come through that and to continue to work on that, I think, Everything we are challenged by in life, it's one thing to be aware of it. Acceptance takes action. And, you know, to quote my good friend Cooper Chapman, um, he says all the time that the act of confidence becomes 
the act of confidence comes before the feeling of confidence. And that's something that I've learned is a big part of mental health. hundred percent. I can agree with that for sure. And like, I feel like it's sometimes difficult to identify insecurities because our ego throws up these things to protect us. Right. Yeah. And that's something as well that I've had to look at and um, reflect and analyze myself over the last year is like, cause I was prior to, um, my current relationship with Mel, it's been a bit over a year prior to that. I was largely single, pretty much single. There was some short term things there, um, for like seven, eight years really. Um, because like I felt so whole already and so committed to, um, my journey, my, my purpose, what I'm going to achieve. Um, and then I feel like I had limiting beliefs within myself that I didn't realize the limiting belief is that like, I can do both at the same time. It doesn't yeah. always have to be one or the other. Um, but to meet someone who understands that and is patient enough with me and understands who I am and what I'm going after and the way I am helped unlock that for me. Sure. But you can't, you can't always do these things uh, yourself. You know what I mean? And like, I'm very obsessed with personal development and growth and challenging myself um, to, to become the best version of myself. And something I always talk about is like, I'm always looking to grow, uh, but I'm always looking to grow in ways that I choose I want to grow. But that way, because I'd been single for so long, forced me to grow in ways that I'm, I maybe wasn't not I wasn't expecting to be yeah. challenged and um, have to get better. But yeah, it's just funny how sometimes it could take a person to come along and show you that. You mentioned something else as well, and it's a really interesting point. You mentioned you're so grateful for the the, the struggles that you've had to go through or the adversity you've had to overcome. And isn't it interesting that? It's often the people that have had on paper the hardest lives uh, or have had the most adversity to overcome always seem to um, truly understand and be grateful far more than the people on the other end of the spectrum that have had awesome lives. You know what I mean? How how do you, where does that gratitude sit with you? How do you, how do you embrace that so fully and wholeheartedly? I love that question because it's something I think about a lot and it's funny, you know, figure that we spoke about a bit in our episode together, Gary Vee. He talks about when you come from the dirt and you've had to work for everything you have, whether it be your health, the lifestyle you've created, you have an appreciation for it. And sometimes when those things are handed to you, like if you come from money and money's handed to you and that's how you found a business or or start, you know, it's all well and good because everyone comes from a different circumstance. And I can understand why as a parent, you know, you want to provide everything you can for your children. Um, but you have to go through your own challenges and experiences to develop the resilience and the courage and the grit required to come out the other side. Being born with cystic fibrosis is what I see as a great blessing and my probably biggest teacher because it's taught me more about age than it's taught me more about life and age and experience ever could. It's for me forced me to get comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable, with the idea of being challenged to know that, the top of one mountain is the bottom of another, that life is never easy, that nothing is ever just on a silver platter in front of you to experience as you please. And I think through that I've met people and I've met myself in different versions that's allowed me to see that no matter what I face in life, it's a blessing just to wake up with air in my lungs and a heartbeat. Like I remember meeting, when I was young, I was never in hot, like I was never sick when I was young because my parents done such a great job and but I remember like every now and then, probably every two years, the doctors would say, come into hospital for a tune-up. The tune-up is essentially like a, a service for your car, right? You just got to make sure everything's sweet, do a bunch of tests. Um, they look after you for a week and just make sure everything's 
moving in the right direction. And I was in a room with three other young dudes at the time. You know, we're all probably, I think we're all the same age, like within a year or two. And one of the guys in this room, his name was Christian. Christian was the same age as me, we were nine at the time. And he had leukemia, um, Indian background and, and his parents were never really there. And he was on such heavy chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Like he'd often, you know, like go to the bathroom during his sleep. And I remember just thinking, I'm, I'm not kidding. Every night that I was in hospital for that two weeks, if my dad was sleeping beside my bed, my mum was sleeping in the parents' room of the hospital. Then the next night they'd shift, mum would sleep beside the bed, dad would sleep in the guest room and they'd drive home during the day, make sure my sister was fine, my sister would stay on my grandparents and come up every couple of days to see me. And I remember just looking at this guy who'd come a great mate in this two weeks and just thinking, fuck, you've got no one there to support you. And I don't know what his parents were going through or what their situation was. But I remember like my parents went out and bought him new pajamas because he'd wet the bed and they would feed him. And like, you know, I, I never ate hospital food. There's always a little KFC or Macca's delivery and mum and dad would get him dinner too. And, you know, they basically stepped in as like his parents for that two weeks that I was there. And in the last couple of days, I remember I got moved to another ward and they moved me into this ward that was kind of hard to get to. And Kristen snuck out the window of the other ward and got around to come visit me. I remember he was just so happy and like when they were dragging him out of there, taking him back to his room, he was just so smiley and happy. I just remember thinking like the odds are against this kid. I remember being nine and just thinking I can't imagine experiencing what he's experiencing, yet he's so happy. And it just taught me that everything in life is, you know, like it's everything is about how you respond to challenge, how you respond to your adversity because you can't change it. Like it is what it is. It's like a game of poker. You can't choose the cards that you've been dealt. You can choose how you play them. And, you know, the poker face is being brave in the tough challenges and the hope is holding on to that last card, the river, and just hoping to dear God that it works out the way you wanted it to. But if you don't hang in there, if you fold, you never know. And that's just what I've said to myself my whole life. No matter what I face, no matter how hard it gets, I'll look at it through gratitude. I'm very lucky to be alive. There's other people in my position who aren't. Every day throughout the course of the 42 for CF promotion, even every day up until now, someone messages me on Instagram or through emails or LinkedIn or wherever and connects with me about a story surrounding CF. And I just remember, I remember I went on Sunrise in the second year promoting 42 for CF and at the time I was hooked up to a drip. My lungs had been bleeding two weeks to get ready for this marathon and, you know, I wasn't in the best situation. But I remember being so positive about it because it's just naturally how I deal with these things. And I had a message from a, a fella on Instagram after being on Sunrise and it was one of many, but this message just cut through where he said, like, he lost his son to CF and he just said, I wish he could have seen you doing this and experiencing this. And he said, you know, whilst... Part of me hurts that my son can't be in the position that you are right now. I'm just so grateful that you're healthy and and able to get up even when life knocks you down and just keep moving forward. And I just remember thinking, fuck, how can you not be grateful? How can you not look at life positively like I'm still here? I'm still in with a chance, a fighting chance. And and so it's just the way I always look at things. Like There's no other way to do it. And, you know, you said before, why be a victim of your circumstances where you can be stronger in spite of them? You, you mentioned... Um, you mentioned before sometimes feeling stuck and how you get out of that. As someone who has overcame so many different um, challenges in life, 
what's your advice? I'm sure a lot of people come to you. They look to you as a point of inspiration and guidance. Um, what's your advice that you give to people when they feel stuck in life? You know, it's, it's interesting. I think it's a, it's an attitude of, of change. Essentially it's, you know, I was asked this question recently on a podcast, just in a different way. And I said, it's, there's this Confucius quote that I love that every man lives two lives. The second begins when he realizes he has just one. And for me, it's at all points in life when I feel stuck or challenged, I remember that quote, the cliche that life is not a dress rehearsal, that if this is all over tomorrow, then, you know, what I've done will echo in eternity. And what do I want that echo to sound like? What do I want that message to be? How do I want to be remembered? And I say to people all the time that, when you feel stuck or lost or even just when you are taking an opportunity to be self-aware and check yourself and check where you're at in life and and what you're doing and what impact you're having, I say to myself, well, how do I want to be remembered? And, you know, if I'm blessed enough to wake up with air in my lungs today in a heartbeat, I've got the absolute gift that is this little thing called today. And it's the opportunity to go out and, you know, inspire others, uplift others, be kind, be loving, impact the people around me add value to their lives as they add value to mine. And if I'm even lucky to wake up again tomorrow, you know, you get to do the same all again. And so it's just, it's ask yourself, like, what do you want? What message do you want to leave with in the world? You know, it's, I've got that quote tattooed on my leg, what we do in life echoes in eternity because it's so true. And I just think if, if my time's up tomorrow, I can be, I can be really proud of, especially the last two and a half years of my life. And so it's every day, it's just coming back to that purpose. It's crafting that purpose for your life and, and taking a punt on yourself because it's so easy just to be comfortable. And I, I get it. Like, I'm so lucky I didn't have the responsibilities of children, um, you know, and I was able to get rid of the responsibility of a mortgage. But, but please, just like if you take anything from this podcast, it's just ask yourself, what is my purpose? How can I craft it? And how can I leave this world a better place and, and let what I've done echo in eternity? Because everybody in life, no matter who you are or where you come from, you deserve to have a purpose. Everyone has one. And whether that's just to be an amazing parent, whether it's to be the most amazing nurse when you rock up every day and to treat your patients with love and care and, and to leave a lasting impression on them when they leave the hospital when they or when they leave life on earth or, or whatever you do, um, it's just you deserve to do something that's of impact. That's, that's extremely powerful. Um, I want to ask you another question, Brad. Um, there's a question I ask uh, quite frequently, usually related to business. And, and the question is, what, what was your hardest day in business and, and how did you get through it? I want to ask you a similar question, but like we've spoken about, you've lived a life many times over for other people. The amount you've experienced, you mentioned when we, before we started rolling, this Life, Money and Love podcast You've had your challenges with money. You've talked about that. You've now had a new experience with love, but life is something that you've well and truly experienced. So I want to ask you from, from the life you've lived and this journey you've gone on of life, what has been your hardest day and what has been your darkest moment that you've experienced and how did you pick yourself back up and keep moving forward? It's such a good question, Dylan. And, you know, there's probably a few days that popped at the front of the, my mind, but there's a day for me that um, probably stands out amongst the others. And for me, it's, it's probably my proudest, one of my proudest moments is I was a month out from the first marathon and, you know, like it was, you know, the typical movie script, right, is like main character 
starts to go on a quest on a journey, things start to look really positive and then they have that like super climatic moment where everything just shit hits the fan, their world is turned upside down and it's like that point of chaos, that point of crisis um, before the, the happy ending and my my point of chaos and crisis was a month out from my first marathon, I was getting really fit, everything was going perfect, I felt great, I'd lost 12 kilos, I looked, looked lean, felt good, life was great and just one morning I wake up and I just don't feel all that good in my lungs and I start to walk towards the bathroom and I cough and just I could feel the blood come straight up and I basically just pushed the bathroom door open and just started coughing blood everywhere and it honestly looked like 10 people just had a pub brawl in the bathroom like there was blood everywhere and it's the most I'd ever coughed up and I was quite panicked and my dad's partner could hear me coughing and Karen yelled out like, are you okay? And I just said, quick, and she called an ambulance straight away. My dad was outside taking the dog for a walk and she called him on the phone and he came come in. And I remember sitting there and I couldn't stop coughing up blood and there's usually tablets I take that help stop that and they just weren't working. And I just remember like sitting there waiting for an ambulance and feeling really helpless and I just thought, I don't, just don't know what the outcome of this will be and you know, like everything that I'd worked for that like three months, four months prior to get healthy just felt like it was coming crumbling down and thankfully I stabilised a little bit, got in the ambulance, they took me to hospital and I remember lying in the hospital bed and just being like somewhat devastated because I was like, just feel like I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders, like I've, you know, sp- spruiked this positive message to the CF community. There's so many people who are waiting for me to cross the finish line of this marathon in a month's time. And, and that's their hope. Like that's for them the light at the end of the tunnel is seeing me achieve it and to know it's possible. And I just remember thinking like far out and you know, two weeks before I'd run my first 30K and it was fucking tough. Like it took all of me. And I just thought like is this the point where I just give up and just go, you know, this is a reasonable excuse just to, to lie down and, and give up on that dream and just continue to go about life. And... I just honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do. And a doctor walked into the room and he said, hey, mate, what's going on? How can I help? And he obviously knew, but, you know, he's asking the question, trying to get to the bottom of it. And I remember it was just like second nature. I literally responded within a second. It was, mate, I don't know. I'm coughing up a lot of blood, but I've got a marathon to run in a month and it's your job to get me to the start line. I'll do the rest. And... For me, I look back and I'm like, that is the proudest moment for me amongst this whole journey because that's the true test. When you think you've got to the top of the mountain and life knocks you down, what are you willing to do get, to get back up and keep moving to the top? And how many times are you willing to do it? And I've done it a bunch of times. I continue to do it. You know, and, and life has a funny way of humbling you, right? So for me, that's a, an experience I probably count as one of the toughest days. It took, it took courage to go out and run again. I remember my first run thinking I hope my lungs hold up and you know, even the other day on Monday to run this 50k I come off the back of eight weeks ago Melbourne Marathon which was like the perfect run I never hit what people runners call the wall mentally or physically I, I found a way to continue to charge through and progress and kicked home for the last bit of the run but you know the other day just all the challenges in the world your body started to give up stomach was sick I vomited in my mouth you know I hit those walls I cramped up you know, I had to walk at periods of time and it's just going, you know, that's how life works. Like it'll let you get to the top of the mountain. It will knock you back down and challenge you again. Um, 
but that's what that's where the growth comes. That's where the resilience is developed. That's where the courage is developed. And you know, so I love these challenging days in life. And God willing, I never have to bleed in the lungs again. Um, but we never know that, and you don't know what's around the corner because no one can predict these things. And it's hard for me to even imagine what it feels like. It's hard enough to run for anyone to run a marathon with fully functional lungs. But how would you describe in the best way you can, what's it like to run with bleeding lungs? Like, what is that feeling like? It's so odd. Like, it just, you feel so restricted and breathing feels hard. It almost feels like, I guess for some people, if you can imagine, like, breathing through a tube or a straw at times. And there's been plenty of times where it's felt like that. And, you know, I've experienced now bleeding, you know, running without bleeding lungs, running with them. And just the, what it takes out of your body when the lungs are not good is, you know, for the first two marathons before getting access to trike after the miracle drug we spoke about early in the pod, my lung function was around 74, 76%. For the average person, 100% is normal. And so to have like 25% less function and capacity, it for me was normal because it's what I trained on and it's how I experienced it. But it just it gets tough at times and it is it is scary to go and run and push yourself when you know what it could be. And, you know, there were always tablets in the back of my little run pouch in case I had a bleed or something crazy happened in a run. But for me, it's just such a blessing. Like, And it sounds so funny to say, but I remember being on my first 20K run ever by myself. That morning, two of my mates, they know who they were, were supposed to rock up to run it with me. Both of them decided to sleep in. And I remember being out there by myself with just like a camelback running and I was 12Ks in and I was hurting. And I remember running through Pucky's Trail, which we ran through a couple of times yesterday and has been a part of every one of our marathon and ultra marathon courses. And it was just a sunny day. The sun was shining. I could just hear the ocean crashing in the distance and I'm running through nature. And I remember hurting and just saying to myself, and it's, come a mantra that I say every night before bed it's I was like blessed to be out here blessed to be running blessed to be healthy blessed that my worst day would be someone's best I'm blessed and it's something I say to myself on every one of these runs when I hurt whether it be a training run or an event just the blessing to be out there experiencing it is something that not a lot of people get to do especially in the world of CF so you know running with bleeding lungs or restricted lung capacity or whatever I'll take it all as long as I can keep moving forward and why was it so important for you to not only make the start line but cross the line 42.2 kilometres later? Man, that that first one, I just remember I remember I was 4Ks out. It's funny because people think that the last bit of a marathon will be the hardest. It's, it's not. It's kind of like I think like middle when right? you get like, yeah, like when you get to that middle or like the third quarter and the way that we ran the first year um, for logistic purposes, you know, of the money that we raise off the marathon, the only thing that costs us when we run an event is the council license. It's a couple hundred bucks. So outside of that cost being covered, everything we raise goes directly to the charity, which is all researching, development and advocacy of life-saving drugs like Trikafta. And so for logistic purposes, so we didn't have to shut down roads or do any of that stuff, we ran three laps of a course in the first year. And like it was out and backs, right? So you like pass some of the same trees like six times and you think, fuck, I hate that tree by the last lap. Or like, fuck, I hate this section of the track. 
But I remember the hardest part was in the first year, ran the first 14 Ks. Energy's great. Like one of my mates, shout out to Joey Plum, one of the sexiest looking characters on earth. I tell him every day is just like, he's going, like, I said a boom, boom, boom. Let me hear you say, way. the whole crowd's like, way. like everyone's just pumped. Energy's high, right? You get to the second lap. It's still kind of the thing. You come into the end of the second lap. I'm at 26 Ks, another two Ks to go before we hit the finish line to turn around for the last lap. Hamstring and like, oh, something feels right. I'm about wrong. I'm about to tear a hamstring here. Massive cramp. Then the front of my legs cramp as I go down to try and stretch the hamstring. Whole body cramps up. Benny Seymour said to me, mate, at all costs, don't stop moving. Just keep moving. Otherwise, you're just going to lock up and it'll be hard to start again. So they're throwing me salt tablets as I'm trying to run through these cramps and I'm pumping water, pumping like a few gels and Powerade, just trying to get something back into the body. And I remember coming into 28Ks and all my family's there and my, my sister's partner, Cal, my mum said to him, God, he doesn't look good. And Cal goes, no, he's fine. And Cal said, oh, I'm thinking, you are fine. <laughs> like you're, you're up against it. And I remember feeling up against it. Going up for that third lap, and the hardest bit was running away from the finish line. So from like 28 to 35Ks, so many demons. Like you just your body wants to give up. You just want to stop. At that point, Anyone will know in a physical challenge, you get to a point where like all the drive, the hunger, you start to question whether that's worth it, yep. whether it's easier just to give up in the moment, right? You know, you've run halves and, you know, and push yourself. And I knew once we got to 35Ks, there would be a glimmer of hope because regardless, we've got to get back to the start line. So whether we walk or run, we're moving in the right direction of finishing a marathon, right? And I got 4Ks out. And don't get me wrong, like there were still heaps of challenges to come. Like you're out, but you've got nothing left. You're just spent. And I remember just looking down at that elastoplast on my wrist and one of my mates, Dano, him and my dad were like caddies on the bike and had a bunch of nutrition and hydration for us. And Dano was taking a bunch of stories and posting a bunch of stuff on my Instagram to keep people updated. And he said to me, 4Ks out, how does it feel? And at 4Ks out, you know you're making a home. Regardless of what happens, you'll crawl. And I remember reading, for all you've done today, I'll make you proud. Dad, mum and sis on my wrist and just crying my eyes out on camera. And as I crossed the finish line and that dream, that, that visualisation of doing this for my family and showing them that my life was going to be what they'd hoped it to be was just the most amazing feeling in the world. And funnily enough, as I was like 100 metres out from the finish line, a bird shit on my chest. And I was mm. like, fuck, there's a good luck I needed 42 k to go. And I remember crossing the line, just collapsing onto the ground and, you know, people I love came over to give me a hug and a kiss and standing up and there's just about a hundred people standing around, you know, clapping and, and cheering and just giving a six and a half minute speech and cried my eyes out in that speech. And I spoke about what that day meant to everyone and, you know, how blessed I was to have the support we've had. And I finished that speech by saying to that doctor 24 years ago who said that, be better off with a terminal illness that cystic fibrosis would ruin my life fucking look at me now mm. and just as I turn to my family just the emotion and for them to see what not just that moment but the last two and a half years has been for the CF community who reach out and constantly champion this event for the people that I've met along the way for all the experiences it's taught me that I'll never give up on the things that I'm trying to achieve in life and, and nor should anyone who faces these challenges I think um, in life, you know, two of the most important attributes you can ever develop are courage and resilience. 
it takes resilience to get through challenges. It takes courage to get back up when life has challenged you. And that's, you know, my message to everyone is just never give up on what you believe your life can be and continually put the work in because you deserve to have a life that's, you know, that's meaningful. Honestly, I can't think of a better way to wrap that up. Thank you for sharing that incredible story. Um, it just proves how much is possible regardless of what, what might be, uh, what barriers might be in the way or why it might look difficult on the outside. But I'm, you're a testament to the rewards that come once you push through that. So thank you for being you. Thank you for coming in here today and sharing your story. I'm sure it will serve as an inspiration to so many people. Where's the best place for people to find you and your podcast and everything that you do with CF? Yeah, Insta's definitely the hub. Like yep. Bradley J. Drybra. Um, the last name is hard to say, but you'll figure it out. <laughs> Um, it does say the captain, which sounds very egotistical, but there's a story behind that for another day. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the hub of the podcast. It's the hub of my, my speaking platform. You know, I'm signed by Saxton's and do a bunch of stuff through them and then off my own back as well. And um, it's kind of where I share everything, whether it be the marathon stuff, the run prep and just, just life. You know, I love connecting with people. And if anyone's listened to or watched the podcast and wants to reach out and flick a message and and just chat and share a little bit of their story with me. I'm always happy to chat and, and hear what other people are experiencing in life. Yeah, I love that. And I, as I said before, I've seen you, before we've properly connected a, a couple of weeks ago, I've seen your videos pop up and I've always thought, fuck, what an incredible man. And like, it's, I take so so much inspiration from your videos. And, I, and because as someone who's, I'd say, in the industry of whatever, speaking or whatever you call it, um, there's, there, there's a difference when someone has a story to tell, but they have the authenticity and personality to tell it as well in an engaging way. And I think you've done that. You do that in both of them. You nailed them both. So yeah, I'm excited to watch you and everything that you achieve with your platform. So it's exciting, man. Likewise, brother. Thanks cool. for having me. Cheers, bro. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again. And I'll see you next time.